This is Yehuda HaKohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Last week, we had national elections here in the state of Israel, and the results say a lot about where our society is headed. A lot of people are happy with the results, and a lot of people are a little bit scared, and I understand why. But I think that when we look at these election results, it's important to understand them within the context of Israel's broader national development. It's important for people to appreciate that results like these were ultimately inevitable. Uh, whether it happened this election or the next one or the one after that, eventually those, um, those forces within Israeli society what we often call the forces of Yehuda and Shimon and Levi and Issachar and Zvulun on the show, ultimately those forces were going to take power. We're going to become stronger and more dominant and more powerful than the force of Yosef, than the Zionists who established the state and have essentially been dominating its cultural institutions since 1948, since before 1948, if we're talking about the Zionist movement. And uh, this shift was coming. And the question is not, is it good, is it bad? The question we should be asking is how can we make it good, right? That is an important question, regardless of whether you like or dislike it, uh, regardless of whether you feel joy or fear in reaction to these election results. I think it's important that we understand that the force of Yosef, meaning the ideological paradigm of Western liberalism. And when I say liberalism, I don't mean liberalism as opposed to conservatism. I mean an ideological paradigm of liberalism that possesses within it both liberal and conservative positions. That ideological paradigm, which is essentially the ideological paradigm of capitalism, of Western civilization for the last couple centuries, that paradigm does not uh, have answers to the challenges confronting Israeli society. And we also have a paradigm, meaning there's an ideological paradigm that is the worldview of our ancestors, the worldview of our prophets and sages, which is not necessarily the only way to look at the world, but it is a way to look at the world, and it's our way to look at the world, and that's the way that's gaining dominance. Now, the problem is until now, because the forces within Israeli society that look at the world that way through the lens of our ancestors, through the ideological paradigm of Emunah, these Jews have essentially been a sectoral group, have been a sector of Israeli society, and have not yet been in a position of leadership. Now, there are a lot of questions um, questions pertaining to non-Jews in our society, to non-Jews who know they're not Jews, and also non-Jews who self-identify as Jews but are not considered Jews according to how we've defined that term for thousands of years. There are also several other groups that feel marginalized or feel endangered by the ascension of these forces in our society, in the state of Israel. And these issues, issues that are important to those people in those communities, need to be addressed now by the forces of Jewish particularism. Meaning, now that we see the forces of Jewish particularism, of Jewish identity, of those who are really connected to, to actually what I consider to be, for the most part, the correct, at least 
foundational understanding of our Torah, of Jewish history, of Jewish identity, of our connection to this land. I mean, all those things I actually share in common with uh, political figures like Betel Smotrich. Like meaning, I do think we see eye to eye on Jewish identity. I do think we see eye to eye on our understanding of Torah. I think we see eye to eye on our connection to this land and the meaning of our coming back here after 2000 years and our purpose in history more broadly, perhaps. Uh, maybe not that one, but we have a lot of differences when it comes to actual policy. And what I'd like to see now and what I think those who are concerned about the ascendance of this group uh, and the type of coalition that we might see resulting from the elections is to actually push these forces in a direction where they're actually forced to struggle with and find answers for more universalist questions. Questions that relate to uh, the status and rights of LGBTQ people in our society, um, the status and rights of non-Jews in our society, whether that be Palestinians, whether that be African asylum seekers, um, whether it be the Jerusalem, who we for the most part have had a good relationship with uh, for the last seven, eight decades, but still not perfect. And I think we can do better on all fronts. Uh, but until now, there's been a deep friction in Israeli society between the forces of Western liberalism and Jewish particularism. And now that it's clear the forces of Jewish particularism are winning and gaining dominance and will most likely continue to gain dominance uh, more and more as we move forward, just based on birth rates, just based on who's been having more kids for the last few decades. Um, I think specifically those Jews who represent the forces of tribalism and particularism and are really living, psychologically living the aspirations of the Jewish people stretching back thousands of years, those Jews specifically, and it might not come from Smotrich or Itamar Ben-Gvir or Avi Maoz, but their voters, um, maybe other people in their party, maybe those who will come after them in coming elections. It has to be this camp that actually seeks to find a real Hebrew universalism rooted in our identity, not in Western liberalism, but rooted in our identity that could actually challenge Western liberalism on its own ideological turf, that could actually present solutions, could present models, can present frameworks that are actually more just than the options being offered to us so far, come from a deeply Jewish place, not create uh, conflicts in our society between those who want to be universalist and those who want to be Jewish, but actually create the opportunity for us to be simultaneously the full expression of both. And I think that regardless of what anybody thinks about this moment, this specific moment in our national development, as scary as it might look, I think this is a necessary step towards ultimately getting to where we're meant to go and ultimately becoming what the children of Israel came back to life after nearly 2000 years to become. Uh, so those are my thoughts on the elections. If anybody wants to see these ideas elaborated on a little bit more, you can go check out my recent article on what the deeper meaning of these elections are, uh, how we should understand them. That's at visionmag.org, still on the homepage, just dropped last Thursday. Check that out. Of course, send us your feedback. You can uh, reach us by going to visionmag.org and clicking contact. Right. Send us an email. Tell us what you think about this podcast, about those articles. And of course, if you like what we're doing, we definitely would like you to help us grow and build our movement. This podcast is essentially 
100% funded by listeners. You can make a small donation or a large one by going to the menu bar up top at visionmag.org and clicking donate. So we want to hear from you. We want your feedback. We want your support. Um, the way to do that is by going to visionmag.org and being in touch with us. That being said, you know, the, the other major issue in the news recently has been uh, questions of anti-Semitism, uh, specifically surrounding recent statements by Kanye West and one of our organizers, uh, Lizzie Uziel, who recently made Aliyah uh, from Toronto and is currently living in Jerusalem. Uh, she recently wrote a piece also at Vision Mag. You can go see it there, visionmag.org, on not just how systemic anti-Semitism operates, you know, according to the Vision Movement's understanding, but also um, how the Jewish community's response to Kanye's statements might actually be counterproductive, might actually be contributing to systemic anti-Semitism. So, Lizzie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I'd love to give you an opportunity now to kind of elaborate more on some of the points you made in this article. Uh, first of all, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got here? Okay, sure. So um, I got involved with the vision movement around a year ago. Um, I had been really interested in this new type of activism I'd seen online, you know, really centered very gently on Jewish indigeneity, which is a word that, um, you know, felt really right to me. But the actual content behind that word, you know, what being indigenous and Jewish really meant was kind of still missing. So I had a friend recommend me to a program that Vision was offering. And through it, I was really able to um, answer a lot of questions that I had had my entire life growing up in the Jewish education system about certain parts of my identity that didn't really seem to click or make sense um, in what I was given before. Um, and especially understanding systemic oppression was something I, I didn't have a lot of education on growing up, whether it was in terms of other groups, Black people, Indigenous people, Palestinians, and especially in terms of ourselves. Um, you know, you grow up hearing a lot about the Holocaust and hearing a lot about anti-Semitism, that it exists. But doing the work to actually understand how it functions in a system uh, was never done. So I guess in terms of Kanye West, you know, when I first saw these comments of Kanye surface online, uh, my immediate reaction was concern because while my entire life I had spent, you know, being a really loud voice against anti-Semitism online, the reason I wrote the piece, I was very concerned with the reactions that I had seen online, which were essentially right off the bat calls to cancel Kanye. And the reason this really concerned me is because recently I've been doing a lot of work to understand that the position of Jews in society that we acquired through hard work and, you know, fighting barriers that have been placed for us to access certain spaces, we've acquired, you know, a position of power and influence that have allowed us to use that power and influence when we feel our communities attacked or under pressure. Um, we tend to respond uh, using things like top-down litigation or lobbying political figures or, you know, putting public pressure on different institutions to, you know, remove or ask a person to apologize uh, for comments that they've made or harm that they've done to our community. And I saw that this was the approach that was being taken with Kanye. And the reason that this really concerned me is because 
this is actually something I think Kanye was trying to set up, was trying to engineer. Um, for a while now, he's been trying to get out of a contract with Adidas. And, you know, this whole anti-Semitic comments are coming off of the back of a photo of him surfacing with Candace Owens wearing a White Lives Matter shirt. Um, this was, you know, his first attempt at rocking the boat. And it didn't really accomplish much in terms of getting him free of certain contracts. But when he made these anti-Semitic comments, the backlash from Adidas was almost immediate um, in wake of all of the anger that was coming from Jewish people. And I had been seeing online tons of people from the black community commenting on how this was just further proof and confirmation of what Kanye was saying, that essentially offending the black community, offending other minority communities really does not do much to a public figure doesn't really cause them much harm, but the Jewish people seem to have acquired enough power and influence to actively suppress anybody that seems to be coming after their interests, which is basically the anti-Semitic comments that Kanye was saying. And, you know, this puts us between a rock and a hard place a lot of the times because, you know, what exactly are Jewish people supposed to do in these sort of situations? Do we cancel Kanye? Do we not cancel Kanye? Um, but really what I wanted to point out to Jewish people was that sometimes we actually play into these stereotypes that we don't realize by reacting viscerally to comments like Kanye's, we're actually perpetrating these conceptions of us in the public sphere. And it's further endangering our places in, in Western society. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so maybe it's important at this point to just kind of give a, um, a brief explanation for how anti-Semitism actually operates systemically. You know, I find it helpful to distinguish. Again, this is semantic and everybody can do what they're comfortable with. Uh, I find it helpful to really distinguish between Jew hatred in various forms, which has existed for thousands of years, you know, since the time that Avraham smashed the idols uh, in Orkazdim, there have been enemies of the Jewish people and those enemies need to be fought. Uh, but there's that on the one hand, and then there's this thing called anti-Semitism. Again, that term is used for a lot of different things and sometimes synonymously with Jew hatred. But as with all issues, I think it's important we, we be a little bit more specific and maybe even scientific in trying to define these things. Uh, so the way I would explain anti-Semitism as a system of oppression, you know, as it was born out of uh, feudalist Europe, it positions the Jewish people not at the bottom of society, but in the middle. Uh, so we're basically enlisted by the power structure to manage the oppression of others so that when those others have had enough and want to fight back against their oppression, they lash out not at the real power structure, but at the Jew. So it, that means very visible inclusion and uh, we are presented to the broader public as having positions of influence. Now, in some cases, we actually do have, you know, for this to work, sometimes you have to actually really have power. But this also needs to be understood, you know, from our end, from the Jewish people's perspective, we see ourselves as vulnerable. Um, I think since before the system of oppression was created, we've seen ourselves as extremely vulnerable, uh, dependent on proximity to the power structure to survive and to thrive. Uh, we've essentially made ourselves valuable. Like we really convinced ourselves for a long time that our survival is very much dependent on making ourselves valuable to the power structure, whether it's to the Duke, to the Lord, to the King, to the Kaiser, whatever. Um, the more valuable we are to the system, uh, the more 
protection we have and the more power we have. And I think that uh, ultimately the only way to break free from that is to make a conscious decision, especially now that we have real power, now that the Jewish people have come back to our land and we have a very formidable military. I think we need to make a conscious decision to be on the side of the oppressed of the world and not the oppressors, because that's the only way I see to really challenge anti-Semitism truly. Um, but this whole issue with Kanye um, is, I guess, to a certain extent, it speaks to the futility of trying to fight anti-Semitism in the diaspora, because he really is, I mean, from the perspective of those supporting him, he is punching up. He's punching up at the powerful Jew that was given inclusion in American society, maybe not at first, but certainly after World War II, was given inclusion, was granted whiteness, or conditional whiteness, we can say, uh, in order to be the convenient scapegoat, ultimately. And I'm not sure, um, I'd be curious to hear what you think, I'm not sure there's an effective way to combat anti-Semitism in the diaspora under these conditions without just saying, you know what, we're going home and just go back to our land and help the state of Israel become what it's supposed to be here. I would tend to agree with that. Um, I would say that, you know, living in the diaspora under those conditions where, you know, your choices are either stand up against what you feel is being like, you know, false ideas that are being perpetrated about you and further play into these stereotypes that, you know, are being assigned to you, or I guess do nothing and allow these ideas to spread on their own. Um, and, you know, this this idea, this question of can anti-Semitism really be effectively fought in the diaspora? I came to the conclusion a while ago myself that I, I didn't think it could be effectively fought. That's part of what contributed to my decision to ultimately make Aliyah is that I don't know that there is a cure for this anti-Semitism that can come from being in the diaspora and from being in a position where you, you as a Jew, anyone as a Jew has not been fully able to understand and connect to their identity and fully unpack our long storied history of oppression and heal from it. Um, I'm not sure that there is the opportunity to do that in the diaspora where our trauma is constantly being relived. Right, I would say that the only answer I could really think of is being able to show up for other struggles as their full selves. Meaning, we, yeah. the more we know how anti-Semitism operates, the more we get it, the more we understand how it works systemically, then the more we can choose to break out of that system. And I think that, you know, right now in the diaspora, politically engaged Jews your age are, for the most part, either showing up for the struggles of others, but kind of without their real identity, without a true understanding or, or certainly a true projection of Jewish identity. And uh, the others, the other, you know, politically engaged Jews your age in the diaspora today are fighting for Israel, feel connected to our history, our identity, our land, etc. They self-identify as Zionists and they have no sensitivity whatsoever in most cases to the oppression of other peoples. Um, even those Jews who like to talk about how indigenous the Jewish people are to the land of Israel seem to be completely insensitive to indigenous issues when it's not a pro-Israel talking point. So a lot of what we try to do at the Vision Movement is really create a critical mass of young Jewish leaders who are simultaneously deeply rooted in our full identity, while at the same time understand how oppressive systems operate 
certainly today, so they can show up for others as their full selves. And that's, I think, what we need to create. That might be a way to combat anti-Semitism effectively in the diaspora. Uh, but that identity they'd be coming with would more often than not push them to want to make Aliyah and rejoin the Jewish people, you know, coming back to life here. It's true. I do think that once a person really does fully start to dive into what Jewish identity really is, and especially on the subject of indigeneity, once they really understand, really fully truly understand how what that word means and how it really applies to us, I think the natural progression of that identity ends up leading a person to want to make Aliyah. But, you know, should that not be the case? And should somebody really be um, on this journey to connect to their Jewish identity and still living in the diaspora, then yes, I would agree with you. That that would be the most effective way to combat anti-Semitism is to learn how to show up, really deeply show up for other minority groups, other oppressed groups that have their own systems of oppression and also contribute our from a place of deep understanding of our identity, contributes to the discussion and the understanding of how our oppression works on a systemic level. But that really does have to come hand in hand with, you know, doing the work to understand the oppression of other minority groups. Because I think if we don't fully understand that, then our ability to communicate our oppression is, is very limited. Right. I, I want to try to put something on the table to help listeners better understand what we're talking about here. Uh, let's leave the Kanye issue aside for a moment. The accusation being made is that Jews are powerful and use our power to push our agendas, to advance the interests of the state of Israel, um, to silence criticism of the state of Israel. And, and one of the places we see this manifest most clearly is actually with BDS campaigns on North American university campuses. You see, there are these BDS campaigns which are in most cases, calling for the universities to divest from the state of Israel. And in many cases, the response from the Jewish community or the pro-Israel community is top-down legislation from American or Canadian politicians who have some connection to the Jewish community. We can assume, receive donations from institutions like APAC, etc. Top-down legislation to make illegal BDS campaigns. Uh, now, if people believe that the real threat is BDS, that BDS is a threat to the state of Israel, then I can see why they would fall into this trap. But it is a trap because what it ultimately does is it casts the Jewish people in the role as this all-powerful group uh, using its power to silence criticism of Israeli human rights violations. Now, if that's how we end up perceived, then we're actually contributing to anti-Semitism and not understanding the real danger of BDS, because the real danger of BDS is not how it impacts the state of Israel. The real danger of BDS is the toxic conversation around Jewish identity that usually surrounds BDS campaigns. And that is basically casting the Jewish people as these powerful actors who are not willing to confront what the state of Israel is doing wrong and are actively trying to silence criticism of Israel while real human beings are being hurt under the state of Israel. Yeah, and I do think that, you know, being in, let's say, a college campus as a minority and super passionate about fighting for social justice and actual change in the ground and like uplifting people that it can be very difficult to appreciate that, you know, a group that tends to reach for things like top down 
litigation or political lobbying could actually also be part of a system of oppression. Not a system of oppression could be, you know, impacting this us too, because it's really, really, really different from the way that all of the other minority groups experience their oppression. So without being able to identify this barrier for us to relate to one another, it's really impossible for us to go forward together and fight systems of oppression together if we can't put a name to this disconnect that we have. So it really does behoove us, the entire Jewish community, uh, especially those fighting online, what we can call the anti-anti-Semitism crowd, uh, it really does make sense to really try to demystify how anti-Semitism operates as a system of oppression uh, so that we can learn how to better combat it without falling into its trap. Yes. Okay. And I think, you know, Kyrie Irving, this recent uh, controversy with uh, Kyrie Irving, for those of you who don't know, um, Kyrie Irving's basketball player plays for the NBA, who has recently been promoting a documentary that is going to be airing on Amazon soon that discusses um, Black Hebrew Israelites. And there's been a lot of pressure on him um, basically to come out against this documentary instead of promoting it. Um, and what happened was that he doubled down on his support for it and he was suspended from the NBA and uh, Nike also ended up suspending his shoe line. Um, but when you actually dive into the history of, let's say, Nike and Kyrie's shoe line, you can actually see that there's already been um, some talks about trying to, you know, cut ties with Kyrie. Um, there's been some issues with him and Nike, and it looks like Nike is using this opportunity of Kyrie being accused of making, you know, comments that are anti-Semitic or promoting a documentary that's anti-Semitic in order to punish him and cut him from their company. Now, if you're looking at this from the outside, you would ask the question, why is this basketball player who's promoting this documentary facing the brunt of the consequences when a company like Amazon should really be the one that's the, the one that's airing it should really be the one that's facing the brunt of these consequences? It, it just does not look very good from the outside eye that all of these things are happening to, you know, especially members of minority communities. And they seem to be, you know, losing money, losing jobs, losing support based on these anti-Semitic comments. It doesn't exactly rouse a lot of sympathy for the Jewish community uh, from members of, of other minority communities. Right. And I think the fact that Amazon is platforming this is a great opportunity for us to try and galvanize the anti-anti-Semitism crowd against Amazon. I mean, Amazon is a company we anyway shouldn't be giving our money to because of their labor practices. This actually speaks exactly to what I was talking about earlier, the fact that those who are really focused on Jewish identity, defending Israel, fighting anti-Semitism, are most often completely unaware of, you know, class issues or how immoral labor practices hurts real people. I mean, this is something we as the Jewish people should be fighting against, but as the Jewish people. Right. And it would have been lovely to see um, the Jewish community, and, and, and this is still something, a direction we can still head in, but it would have been lovely to see this rhetoric um, against this Hebrew-Israelite documentary really be directed towards, you know, the people who should be held responsible for it, who have a lot of other unethical um, business practices that should be called out. And that's really where our support should be going towards creating a change, which I would love to see Amazon have to address a lot of the immoral or unethical practices that they engage in. I'm less concerned about a basketball player like Kyrie Irving, who obviously is promoting something that he feels very connected to. For someone like that, I'd, I'd rather see us engage in dialogue and really, you know, 
sit down and have a conversation about both his oppression and our oppression so we can reach a different understanding but i definitely do not think that in terms of the small the the, the guys who are you know employees of these giant corporations i i think that we should really be extending them compassion and be directing our outrage towards the people who really should be receiving it okay a lot to think about lizzie uzio thank you so much for joining me on the show thank you so much for having me is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we call it an episode no i think that's good all right well uh, if anyone's interested in checking out the show notes you can go to visionmag.org uh, backslash the next stage eight uh, seven once again yeah, we'd love to hear your feedback so please get in touch with us by going to visionmag.org and clicking contact on the menu bar up top. And we also very much appreciate your support. So anyone looking to help fund these podcasts and the broader work we do at the Vision Movement, please head over to visionmag.org or visionmovement.org and click donate on the menu bar up top. Uh, podcasts like this are 100% listener funded. We don't want that to change. So we really do appreciate your support and look forward to seeing you next time. Awesome.